Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Sarah Sarkis, clinical psychologist located in Honolulu, Hawaii. Sarah is here to talk about the power of the unconscious, really amazing topic. I'm really interested and looking forward to conversation with you about this today. Thanks for having me. I want to talk with a little bit about you and your background, but first, uh, we have an interesting conversation about how we met here in Hawaii a while back. Yes, we sure do. What's your recollection of that? Okay, so my recollection is that probably, well, this has got to be five years ago, right? So about five years ago, I started to sort of try to think about transitioning my career. So I live in Honolulu like you do. So I started sort of doing research and trying to find people that had like an interesting private practice and that it incorporated writing. And I came across your profile and I sent you an email Um, And I think I was basically saying like, hey, can I come kind of pick your brain? Right. And then I'll let you say how you managed that email. Well, not very well, (laughs) because what I recall is that I got this email. I was like, okay, here's uh, Dr. Sarkis, a psychologist in the community. I'm so busy. I don't have time. I'm a little anxious about meeting a new person just out of the blue. And I think I found every excuse in the world not to answer that email. Well, you were completely uh, like so kind about it. But you were basically like, yeah, I'm really busy right now. And it sounds great. And I'd love to connect. But like, touch back with me in a bit. Right. Um, And then the funny part is you fast forward and our sons were playing on the same soccer team and it happened to be that my husband was the coach with you yes and at some point like deep into the season my husband mentions oh yeah my wife is a psychologist too and you're like oh who and he says my name and then we finally officially meet as it always happens in hawaii Uh, face-to-face on the sideline. Right. And you know, that was a great lesson for me, Sarah, because I realized like I put you off, not because I was really so busy, just anxious about wanting to, about meeting a new person. It's just easier to put things off. And then once I met you, I realized how wonderful a person you are. And, (laughs) you know, my professional life has been enriched by meeting you and knowing you. And here you are on the, on my podcast episode. I know. I'm so flattered. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to have you here. And it was a real lesson to me about how sometimes you just need to step outside that comfort zone and go for it because you could easily miss these great opportunities to meet interesting people and enrich your life. Yeah. And it's so funny because the whole reason I emailed you was I had basically, I had sort of made a decision that I was going to inoculate myself against rejection. So actually, (laughs) I have a whole blog on it on my blog. And I rejected you. It was perfect because I needed to be rejected by people. I needed to put myself out there constantly to be told no and sort of build the scar tissue. So we, we mutually satisfied each other's life lessons. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to put it. (laughs) And the lesson to you and anybody who faces dealing with rejection, the person doing the rejecting is probably socially anxious. That's right. That's right. It wasn't about me at all. Uh, That was my big lesson in that life 
chapter anyway was like, it's not about me. Just, right. you know, the only thing that's about me is the reaching out or the withholding reaching out. Yes, I agree. Well, I'd like to get to know a little bit about you as a clinician and as a person before we get into this great topic of the power of the unconscious. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into this field and your interest in this topic and your evolution as a therapist. So that's a great question. Kind of on the surface, I you know, went to college and like everybody else kind of didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was a double major in English and psych and I contemplated sort of briefly and had a, a couple of professors who encouraged me to maybe like postpone making a decision and pursue writing and let it be kind of like nebulous and open. So the forces that consciously drove me to psychology were that I, I always found it fascinating. I was always sort of nosy, um, maybe even like precocious as a kid. I had this double major and one was really nebulous and the mm -hmm. other was like much more structured and kind of had like a set number of hoops you'd have to jump through and then you'd have this trade. A lot of hoops. A lot of hoops. <laughs> um, but the hoops were very welcome to me because the world of writing, which I'm now trying to do in reverse, seemed at a 22-year-old, it was like, how am I going to pay for my life? And who just does this, right? So there yeah. was sort of this surface conscious level. So when I was nine years old, this is probably the first time I realized, oh, wow, like I really tick differently than my peers. So mm -hmm. when we were nine, I grew up in Massachusetts. So an annual field trip for all third graders was to go to Plymouth Rock. And anybody who doesn't know who Plymouth Rock is, it's like where the Mayflower came in. Yeah. And it's this whole like, you know, people are dressed up like as though they're pilgrims and living like that. And they put on these sort of, I guess, shows, mm -hmm. right, for these classrooms. I remember like all my peers, my nine-year-old peers around me, and I remember this woman dressed as a pilgrim, mm -hmm. like wooden shoes and everything. She was churning butter mm -hmm. and teaching us how to churn butter. And I, I was standing closest to her and I kept leaning in and being like, but you know you're not a pilgrim, right? And I was literally obsessed with trying to figure out if she understood that she... <laughs> I was like, when you go home, you take these clothes off. And... The next day we went to school and I was like getting scolded, like to pay attention. And I, you know, I just couldn't stop. And the next day I go to school and the quiz is on how to churn butter. And I failed because I hadn't paid attention to how you churn butter because I was so consumed with trying to figure right. out if she had reality testing. You were more interested on. in the psyche of the I, person than how to churn butter. I was doing a mental status yeah. on her but a nine-year-old's version of it. So I now think about that story and I'm like, oh, so the roots go way back, you know? Right. And I'm sure birth order's in there. I'm the youngest of like a big New England family. So, I mean, the, the, the reasons are endless. But by the time I got to Georgetown, by the time I was graduating from Georgetown, I was pretty clear that this felt like a passion. And you've really reconnected with the writing. Uh, I've read all of your blog posts on your website. I know you... Uh, maintain a really popular website with your writing. It's really excellent. And I'll make sure to provide a link to that uh, on our on the website uh, for you. this podcast because your writing is really amazing. Oh, thanks. And that may segue into our conversation. So should we get into the power of the unconscious? Dive in. Okay. I'm so all yours. At the risk of sounding naive, yes. let's start from the beginning. Let's what is this 
concept of the unconscious and yes. why is it powerful? Okay. Um, I like when we start big. It's great. Okay. So I went to a doctoral program that was, you know, for anybody that hasn't gone through a doctoral program or doesn't kind of know the nuts and bolts, you take these kind of core curriculum classes, but then every program has kind of a bend that they take, right? Right. And my bend that I chose to go to, uh, I only applied to one doctoral program, was psychoanalytic. My doctoral thesis looked at Winnicott. So I really looked at like object relations and attachment disorders specifically related to sort of sadomasochism. So I had this of my training, I had this huge fund of knowledge about this thing called the unconscious that Freud had kind of made very popular a one-sentence synopsis on Freud's, which I already know ahead of time is like bastardizing his empire. But for the ease for the listeners, sort of this notion that the unconscious is this primitive part of your mind that is your entirely unaware of it Mm -hmm. and it's almost like an episode of Westworld you know it's like all your kind of smut and your darkness resides there trauma resides Mm -hmm. there um, and that it operates with considerable influence so that just didn't bear out for me most of the time I was kind of seeing that it was much more ordinary and so over the years I just sort of paid attention to that and then right around the time when I started to kind of shift my attention right around the time that I made contact with you so about 5 years ago I started reading much more just on like neurobiology and brain development and I came across this concept of the adaptive unconscious yeah. and that's sort of the working concept that I have now you know if you talk to me seven years ago, it would be different. It may be different in seven more years. But as of right now, this notion that the unconscious is actually, first of all, it's the vast majority of what influences us. Scientists believe that 95% of what we think, feel, and experience originates from unconscious regions versus conscious. So that alone made me curious because I think most of us in and especially those of us that are like very type A or we tango with issues of control. So we kind of fancy ourselves mostly conscious and rational. And here was this statistic that was kind of like tipping that on its head. So this is sort of the idea that inside the brain, the mind, there are processes going on that we're not aware of that are just sort of ticking and churning in the background, 95% of the thought going on is happening there. And we don't know about that on a conscious level. Is that? Yeah, we don't, we don't actually experience it in that it's not pathologic. It's not that Mm. smut goes to reside there. It's just a function. It's an adaptive, hence the phrase adaptive unconscious. It's an adaptive process of how our brain has come in its efficiency equation. What makes it adaptive? Yeah. So Part of it is about kind of how the unconscious operates with these three parts of our brain. So we have processing speed, memory, and decision making. Mm -hmm. And if you just like think about even for those listeners that aren't psychologists, if you just sort of like pause for a minute and you think about how many moments of your day involve just those three processes. So the the part that makes this adaptive is that the unconscious is constantly filing and sifting through the millions 
of experiences you have every second mm-hmm. in, through every sense organ that we have. And it is, you know, like it's filtering through and it's sifting and taking out what is relevant for the moment that you have to make the decision. Um, so it is highly adaptive. I, I have this one article and I think I reference it basically saying like if we didn't have the power, the process of the unconscious, we would essentially be rocking and shaking in the corner. Yeah. We would be totally overwhelmed. You know, I was I was thinking about it this morning as I was getting dressed. Tell me if this is uh, this is just a silly example, but tell me if this would be an example of it like okay, I've got no sense of style. And I know a lot of people do have a sense of style, but I don't. I I don't agree, but sure. Well, I've got my own sense of (laughs) style, which is like an anti-style, I suppose. But I walk into my closet to get dressed today. As far as I know, I put absolutely no thought into anything I chose to wear. I just grabbed, well, you can see the shirt and the pants and the shoes I put on. They were pretty much just like decisions I made that I wasn't really consciously aware of. I just grabbed stuff. Yeah. But I had to choose something, right? Because... You can't I, go naked. I, I, well, I... An ankle bracelet won't look good. That's right. <laughs> I don't want them to see my ankle bracelet. And on top of that, like, as much as I don't have a sense of style, I have a bunch of shirts in my closet. I could have picked any one of them, and I picked this one. But if I had stopped to say, hmm, which shirt am I going to put on and why... I would have been there all morning, probably. Yeah, well, it's funny you're bringing this up because, like, you know, Steve Jobs is, like, this famous guy that always wore the same thing, right? And um, actually, that's part of an efficiency exchange. People that choose to wear, like, the same outfit every day or sometimes you'll hear people who, like, they wear the same thing every Monday, the same thing every Tuesday. It's for decision fatigue, and it's for exactly that reason. It's trying to efficiently off-put how much pressure we put on ourselves and how much that actually slows us down. But I mean, we could follow that inroad all the way back to even like unconscious messages you got around like fashion and, you know, um, so the, the unconscious has really deep tentacles, but my colleague and I have done this great, uh, three night presentation a couple times now. And one of the evenings is about the power of the unconscious and things that people don't think about that the unconscious governs. So like blinking, Mm. breathing, Swal- yeah, imagine if swallowing. you had to stop and think about breathing every time you took a breath. You'd spend all your time thinking about breathing. Or if you thought to, if you if you had to consciously say like, "Oh, I should lubricate my eyes by blinking right now." How about swallowing? Yeah. Right. So there's all these. We we have them stand up and we have them take a pace forward, then stop, take another pace forward. Most of the time, you're going to see they lead with the same foot every time. Those are unconscious movement patterns that trace all the way back to the earliest days and months where you were learning dominance, mm-hmm. dominance of crawling and the, str- the different strengths in the sides of your body. And those are unconscious patterns. And so the more that we could normalize and share with people live how it was happening at a very practical level, mm-hmm. like blinking, breathing, swallowing, stepping, then you suddenly have them kind of curious about the unconscious and they're not coming from the place of, I don't want to know what's in there. Yeah. I don't want to know that I'm like, whatever, fill in the blank, so which is always of, shame based. So some patients, it sounds like, 
are scared of the unconscious and finding out what they might discover if they look within themselves. Yeah, I think that's why people are always like, I don't know if you have this experience, but until people know me, once they, when, when they hear, like, when they're like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, I'm a shrink. And they're like, oh, like, you know, there's always the sort of sense that, yeah. like, we're going to analyze them and find out some secret right. that's going to, like, I don't know what, you know, yeah, like... Well, what, what they usually, I think, don't understand is how much work it is <laughs> to do that. And that's the last thing that we you want to be ever doing. Ever want to do socially. Social yes. situation, right. This concept of the unconscious, what's the origin of it? Are we born with an unconscious or these unconscious processes? Are they developmental? Where do they come from and how are they shaped? I don't know whether or not we're born with it, but I think our brain is designed to work this way. Like we were just saying that I think if we didn't have this, it does operate as a filing system and it integrate it interacts with and influences memory. And so there are ways in which Freud was revolutionary for his time. Although I clinically sort of grew up to think maybe he got ahead of himself on some of it. But like there were elements psychologically, right, where we see it all the time in in that way. But just from a functional standpoint, just how it the unconscious interacts with our cognitive functioning. Like by the time you have a conscious thought, it has been touched by every element of your unconscious. So yeah, memory, I'm... processing, speed, decision making, all of it. What would be an example of how a child might have experiences on a pre-conscious level or pre-verbal level that might affect how their unconscious develops? Mm. Can you think of something that might be an example of that? I don't know if I could give you like a specific mm. example. I mean, because first of all, they're just endless. Yeah. Uh, so we could kind of pick anything. Um, like, I mean, how kids, you know, orbit socially. You can watch a kid in a classroom and really see these processes. But I'll say this. I work in this realm where I'm often talking to my patients about neurobiology. That's sort of the lens through which I'm often discussing how our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors get shaped and formed. And we're born incredibly dependent and very unformed. So we do have obviously genetic tendencies and you know epigenetically how much that influences us is a really popular topic right now. But it's less than we used to think. We used to think everything was sort of in our genes. The Human Genome Project sort of surfaced that actually there's way more variability than that. There's less conditions we thought that were sort of extremely mediated by genetics. And so it leaves this huge world where the place where we dwell, which is where genetics and environment and temperament all kind of converge to create this thing we call psychology. And so by the time your kids are 10, they've had an endless number of, I think of it as like layers, like almost like phyllo dough. It's mm -hmm. like just layers of filtering that have shaped them. And zero, let, let's be really conservative and say zero to five before they have more advanced language. Plus we tend to think kind of long-term, real long-term memory storage kicks in around five or six, you know, mm -hmm. everything else fades to screen memories. So Let's say zero to five, everything's in the unconscious. Mm -hmm. And we'd never venture to say it's irrelevant. 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's why as shrinks, we spend so much time trying to understand the soil from which this psyche flourished. Um, so it's endless mm-hmm. with our kids. It's rather horrifying if you actually think about it too much. But yeah, thankfully, sure. the unconscious takes care of that, too. Yeah. You can only think about something for so long. So zero to five is, is, is operating at a somewhat of a pre-verbal level. And, but children are obviously having an experience every second they're alive. And these are somehow internalized and processed at a level that they're not consciously aware of, but then impact the way that they uh, experience the world later at an unconscious level. Yeah, and every experience thereafter, even once you develop language, because yeah. don't forget that adaptive unconscious is really kind of, it's part of our neurobiological efficiency exchange. Without it, we just couldn't be as neurocognitively efficient. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's, it's it's just operating all the time. And then if you add in, and everybody's got it, you add in any like traumas, any kind of like developmental injuries or hiccups, and then you can get all the way to the much more extreme end of the spectrum where you see, you know, real trauma processes unfolding later in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, too, because I'll be interested to hear how you work with that in your clinical practice and how that shows up with your patients. Just to continue along here, I am going to coin a new term today. Okay. I love and it. And this is going to be entered into the new Webster's Dictionary. Okay. The term is a sarcasm. Oh, my friend Jane Dobson is going to love that. She's been saying for years. So you have a you have a, a two-person fan club for awesome. this idea. Okay. Yes. So sarcasm will be the new word. And the reason why I came up with that was after reading your blogs, and your blog entries and your writing, you have some really, really amazing and thought-provoking quotes that, funny thing is, since I know you, they, I could just imagine them coming out of your mouth. So I'm like, this is a sarcasm for <laughs> I sure. Love it. And I want to read a couple of them here, and then maybe you could just tell us what what these mean exactly okay. um, on this topic of the power of the unconscious. It's so funny because I haven't heard these at all for people that are listening. So you let, don't know that I'm going to say them, but you'll be familiar <laughs> yes. with the statements, I'm sure. Oh God. So the first one is the conscious mind does not run the show, and the second one, which is related which was pretty about provocative, I thought. Most of us are sheep, or sheepish, and entirely oblivious to our blindness. And I think those two are somewhat related. Yeah. So uh, what, do, what do we mean by these? So anytime I'm talking about sheep or sheepish, it's so funny because this article, too, has been, I'm working with a mentor now who I've long admired, and it's so funny because we really went to the mat on this that second quote about the sheep about the sheepish so it's great that you're picking up on that you know it's just a fact that the vast majority of what moves the needle in our conscious life comes from the unconscious it's a tiny tip of the iceberg that we're conscious of most of us first and foremost present company included are totally and completely kind of at the mercy of this realization so for me it's been really life-changing clinically but personally it's also like humbled me to just like you know I can be pretty like provocative and you know willing to kind of say and do things that 
I may only have a, a modicum of evidence for. It's actually forced me to like really just take a step back and think about how little I actually know about what is driving me. Yeah. For me, it's been helpful. So that's what I mean by it. But yeah, most of us are subject to it. I mean, if you're if you're in the sphere of consumerism at all, mm-hmm. if you follow politics at all, if you are in a relationship of any sort, like how you chose your career, it's operating at every single layer of your life. Well, let's talk about some of those because those are all really good domains, I think, of areas where people may be sheepishly walking around and not conscious of the decisions they're making. And also, I assume that that that's not always a bad thing. People could be making good or reasonable decisions for them that are coming from a place of unconscious, but also might be making decisions that they might not choose to make if they were more aware of the reasons why they were making the decision. So this isn't a good or a bad thing. Exactly. Almost any patient who chimes in here will laugh because the fact is I'm always saying like for the vast majority of us, everything we're doing is morally and ethically neutral. It's just happening. Mm -hmm. And the more we can observe it and the more we can try to be present and sort of get that, like, you know, Viktor Frankl's famous thing between kind of stimulus and response, there's actual free will. And the unconscious, of course, still governs us there as well. But that moment of pause is probably kind of the best gig we got going mm-hmm. for for trying to become more conscious, more aware, more mindful, all the things that are really popular right now. I mean, it's true. It's neither good nor bad. And actually, like, thinking on the scale of good or bad is an epidemic, right? So, like, even if it was good, good's just another cage. So, like, we don't want to even, as therapists, sort of promote that kind of muscle. It's Mm -hmm. usually way over-exercised in most of us. Um, so it just is. It just is. Yeah. And the more we can be present in that, and also the great thing about my, my sort of commitment to working within the unconscious, and it, as you know, it's one tool and a bunch of tools that you have to have as a therapist because everybody's different, right? And every day is different, even with the same people. So one of the great things about the observing this about the unconscious is that it gives us an opportunity to also sort of observe how our patients and ourselves orbit around control. Because mm. it's the very notion. I mean, you are basically proposing to people that you, John Doe, or Jane Doe, who pride yourself on being conscious, conscientious, well thought out, well read, well educated, well achieved, all these things that people pin their ego and their sense of self on. We realize, oh, I don't actually have as much influence. And so we really get to see how people orbit around those kinds of issues. And as a shrink, those intersections tend to be kind of the epicenter of other things that we say like, oh, well, I just have anxiety, right? But once we take anxiety apart, it has all these undercurrents. um, And control and surrender is always a battle that occurs at that in that platform. And so you get to see all these elements that 
really help you know your patient better. Yeah. When it comes to anxiety, I was always trained in the cognitive behavioral model model for doing cognitive therapy, identifying irrational thoughts, reframing them, all of that. And I found that an important component to treatment with anxiety it was really improved a lot when I spent a little bit more time going back into the past and finding out, well, what is what are feeding these anxiety-provoking thoughts from your childhood, from your experiences, where do they come from? Just that process, making the unconscious thoughts more conscious and bringing that even into a cognitive therapy paradigm is very helpful for people because then they're like, okay, I'm having these thoughts, but why? I mean, okay, we can work on changing them, but... They do come from someplace, and it's helpful to know that and understand it. It's really helpful, and that's a perfect example. I mean, it's pretty much everything, right? And so it takes decades to like come to this awareness, right? This kind of subtle awareness of how you can blend practices and theories. But you're totally right that understanding that neurobiology and the intergenerational patterns of attachment that shape us is critical to untying the knots operate in our current life um, as, you know, self-limiting or sabotaging or painful, being able to kind of tango in this world and help people see. And one thing you said a minute ago that I think is really great to point out about the unconscious is also that uh, the unconscious is unidirectional. So when you're unaware of it, you're completely unaware of it. You are only conscious of that 5% that you believe wholeheartedly is 100% of it. Mm-hmm. Then things and strategies, usually it will come through either, you know, I mean, therapy is one form that we do this, right? I've seen people come in with no therapeutic experience, but like a long history of, you know, working with either like somebody of their religious faith, whether it's a rabbi or it's a Buddhist monk or it's, you know, or mindfulness. And so they already have certain a certain amount of foundation. But as you are able to show people these unconscious aspects, it can never be unconscious again. It's one directional. Mm-hmm. So once it's conscious, it moves into consciousness. Now, we can use repression, denial, magical thinking, sublimation, humor. We can use all these, we call them defense, defense mechanisms, mechanisms yeah. right, to, to <laughs> not know it, but it's not unconscious. Mm-hmm. And so that's really powerful. And, you know, that often becomes obviously the role of the therapist in the partnership is like, oh, remember, we're back here. Remember how we were here, different intersection, different topic, but same core unconscious place or pattern. And, you know, you slowly just continue to put together those dots for them. And, you know, my experience has been that through exposure, through frequency of coming back time and again, and and the therapist being skilled enough to see that it's all connected. Mm -hmm. Usually you'll find a core unconscious pattern. And that, that unconscious pattern has tentacles, right? So it's not simple, but it's a core intersection. Um, And once you find that, you'll see that kind of most of what the person has been orbiting around their whole life at a psychological level orbits around that. And then you can just pay attention to it and keep pointing it out to them. So 
this idea of defense mechanisms, let's just set that aside. And I would like to hopefully have you back on another show where we talk about defense mechanisms entirely. I would because love that, that. That's a fascinating topic. And not enough people want to talk about that. I love talking about that. Me and too. I know you do too. I so do. can I have you back on a future show to do that? Please. Great. Let's talk a little bit though about these three areas. And I'm hoping that you can give some very concrete ideas for listeners about how the unconscious might be affecting them in these areas. Okay. So one of them we talked about a little bit before was about careers, the work we choose and how we work. If somebody was going to examine their career path, their work, how would they assess or know how their unconscious process was directing that? Well, even the phrase, how would they know, right? It gets into sort of like people needing certainty. So first I would say, you know, we are excavating from the past. So we're going to kind of like um, archaeologists, at best we're going to find fossils and we're going to have to piece it together with a little bit of faith, a little bit of Mm -hmm. faith that the dots connect enough. And usually it won't be cognitive. They'll sort of feel it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I can, oh, yeah, that, you know, you know when you've hit on something. And the key is always to really look at your past, look at how you got shaped and formed. And if we're talking about careers, like what were the messages you got around security, stability, risk-taking? This would affect how somebody would assess the career that they've chosen and whether or not they're satisfied in it? Well, it would assess whether which career they'll land in. I see. You know, it's it's sifting and filing out as you're choosing which careers you're going to head mm. toward. And, you know, what's a good career? What's a safe career, so a what, stable career? Would an example, I'm just, the first thing I'm pulling out, be like a person is feeling compelled to go down some particular career path but is feeling uneasy about it might go back and examine well I heard all sorts of messages about how this is what I'm supposed to do and that's driving my decision-making process here yeah I mean I don't know that it would be that sort of well prescribed right Uh but you'll you listen and you hear like I can use myself for an example I alluded earlier that um, I had this intersection where I was really contemplating right after Georgetown, like, would I move to New York and pursue writing? Or would I sort of go down this other path of psychology, right? And I can see now from all the work that I've done, and from therapy and insight and mindfulness and everything that the unconscious factors that were propelling me into that at the time, into the certainty of psychology, had to do with like where my family was at the time, you know, what was the world that I would, the financial world that I had to face at that time. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that consciously in the moment. In the moment, I just felt like this is really interesting and I'm super psyched about this. Mm -hmm. And now I see that all these like developmental and unconscious dynamics were also kind of pushing me in this direction. Who knows if I had had more um, ability to tolerate uncertainty and had a higher appetite for risk at the time, had a, would I have gone down a different path? But I really know now 
the unconscious things that were driving me, right? Like my, my parents were getting divorced at the time and I wanted stability and I wanted something that I knew I could support myself for the rest of my life. Those were the conscious things. But I didn't know all this other stuff that was influencing me. I didn't realize that like my thoughts on like what it meant to be successful mm-hmm. were influencing it. Um, and, and that's a real subjective topic too what Mm -hmm. success is and it's always shaped intimately by our childhood and what Mm -hmm. we saw with our parents and other achievers in your family competition etc so you know that's a really concrete example in terms of career but I have lots of examples where it's not career based per se but psychologically based where you can really kind of trace somebody's behaviors back to these unconscious patterns mm-hmm. uh, and it's very liberating for people to get to the epicenter of it perfectionism is a perfect example like the surface behavior is like oh i want to address procrastination so at the surface level now you're talking about like looking at people's time management and you can go that route it's all sort of behavioral right but i want to figure out okay so what's really mm-hmm. happening under the surface and what I find universally with perfectionism is that it doesn't have anything to do with, well, it does on the surface with um, achievement and success and putting out a good product and all of that. But you get sort of just underneath the surface and you're going to find all these unconscious patterns around shame Mm -hmm. and worthiness and self-value. And so now when people like self-prescribe themselves as perfectionists, they're like, oh, I have perfectionism. I'm like, no, no, you have shameism. Mm-hmm. It's operating at an unconscious level as shame. But at the behavioral level, you think it's perfectionism. Sure. And then you build this whole persona on, oh, I just like things to be perfect. It's like, no. Yeah, so the perfectionism is a behavioral compensation for some deeper unconscious issue going on. Yes. And I imagine with that procrastination issue, it can be very we're operate on such a deep level because the person feels a deep level of of shame they feel unworthy not good enough and so they have to compensate by doing everything perfect in order to compensate for that but doing things perfectly is a pain in the butt and it's a fallacy it it can't be done anyway that's right but even the attempt to do it is 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 a is a royal pain because to do something try to do something perfectly takes a ton of work so it's easy to procrastinate and it's very stunting yeah. because you can never achieve it you are constantly failing your own standard yeah. and there's nothing that can fill that black hole and um, you know people will orbit and then what happens is that you see that people that have perfectionism and in this case, procrastination, but we could tag on a bunch of secondary behaviors sure. attached to perfectionism that are unique to every person that would walk in, right? We're just taking procrastination here, is then they develop a conscious shame cycle around, the, oh, I'm lazy, mm-hmm. I'm undisciplined, I'm unmotivated. They connect all this stuff, which isn't true at all, you know, it's a self-perpetuating loop. But eventually, if you stick with me long enough, we're going to get to kind of core personality intersections. What I have found when I have worked with people on the behavioral level, and I say this to them, a lot of times somebody will come in, there'll be a phobia, okay? 
we can work on a phobia. And I say to them, you know, we can get you on an airplane, let's say it's fear of flying, in 16 sessions. This is not rocket science, right? We'll get on the plane. They'll have their successful experience. Now they're flying. They see the reduction just merely from exposure. And they'll be like, great, thank you so much. I'm all done. And I always say to them, awesome. Door comes and goes easily. You can always come back. I can always make referrals. But just know this. This is one behavior. It's like whack-a-mole. Now it'll be something else. Oh, well, I never had a fear of this before. And now suddenly I have this. Mm -hmm. And you'll cycle through these behaviors until you get to the epicenter. And I've found at the epicenter everything, I mean, it's endless, the number. It, it is actually unique, like a fingerprint, what the person's unconscious intersection is. But you'll always find something. And once you get there, they possess inside of them now the capacity to, over time, really undo once and for all mm -hmm. those behavioral patterns that had held them in orbit mm -hmm. for so long. So this, un this underlying unconscious conflict that they're dealing with is what's creating some of these surface issues, the phobias, the anxieties, the avoidances, and those may continue to pop up if the person isn't dealing with a more underlying issue. They will continue to yeah. pop up. <laughs> you, you see my previous thing of saying things definitively but they will show up yeah. again they not it's not that they may they yeah. will and they may be subclinical you can white knuckle them for a while but ultimately in the end you always bump up against yourself so wherever you go there you are they'll show up again and i don't know that i would say they're unconscious conflicts but they're just patterns they're patterns that got set in motion mm-hmm um, and sometimes it's around like benign stuff that didn't even seem traumatic to them. And then obviously if there's a trauma history, sure. you, know, you get into a real different realm of um, untying those knots. So let's talk a little bit about relationships and the power of the unconscious. And I have a few more sarcasisms here <laughs> that I'm going to read. Love it. And then I'm going to let you have at it, okay? Okay. So one is this buy one, get one free idea. I often hear people reflect that the things that they were most attracted to in their spouse are now the very traits that drive them apart. That's a pretty provocative statement. And, um, and then the similar one, um, I, I love this one. I pulled this one this morning. Let's say, I'm going to have to put this one in here. Quote, I am loath to pull the bloom off the rose of what we call chemistry of attraction in this society. Yeah. So, Sarah, what do these quotes mean? Yes. Um, you're picking all my favorites. Um, this is like one of my favorite things to talk about with patients when they come in inevitably with uh, partnership issues. And who amongst us who hasn't navigated long-term partnership doesn't have those moments, right? Basically, everybody gets mm -hmm. this, some version of this. So we, we have this thing we call chemistry. And we're really, most of us who have ever been in love have felt it. And it's intoxicating. I did this awesome podcast with this rad woman from Georgetown, Sarah Osteen, that has this podcast. And she asked me, this was her topic, to really look, like understand the difference between like the brain on love and the brain on hate. 
and uh, turns out they're super similar. Mm. And but the brain on love is like essentially like a brain on cocaine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not the best decision-making machine. And yet we make these decisions. I'm always like when I work with somebody or I have, a, you know, if I have friends or whatever who like fall in love really quickly and get married, I'm always like a little bit like, oh, God. There's some possible red flags there. And just like what's going to pop up? Yeah. Like at least if you're signing a forever contract and, you know, most of us still go into marriage despite it's a bit of a PR free fall. Um, we most of us go into it with the intention of it being forever, right? So I just feel like, gosh, you kind of want to know the other side of the coin. And everything is like a coin. On one side, it's where you love the person and you flip that same coin over. It's usually like all the kind of soft underbelly of what shaped us in our childhood that we were either totally unaware of or we were just sort of rudimentally, rudimentally aware of, right? Where we really see this come out, and it's, it's obvious, is in the um, family systems approach to substance abuse. And we, specifically like adult children of alcoholics, you know, at the conscious level, they'll go into every partnership being like, I'm never going to marry an addict, never going to marry an addict, or mm -hmm. like what, or never marry somebody struggling with addiction is the more appropriate way to say it. Mm -hmm. And they mean it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sure enough, you get a couple of years in, and that's all the same stuff they grew up with. And yet they were totally conscious at the time of being like, this is going to be different, and I'm not going to do that. And we see that because that's the power of the unconscious, that mm -hmm. where we get shaped very, those, those intersections that shape us pre-cognitive capacity really, really influence us. So, and we so, aren't, yeah. Yeah, so in that situation then, if somebody had consciously told themselves, I'm not going to get involved in a relationship with a person with an addiction and then did exactly that, what would be something going on within the unconscious that might lead somebody to engage in that kind of relationship? Well, oftentimes what we see with the unconscious, right, is that the brain and the mind and the body, which are all connected, they have this um, incredible desire to fix what what injured you and to sort of get it right. Mm -hmm. And um, so a lot of times what you'll see is within these unconscious patterns, people can actually try to, they are unconsciously trying to work out the friction of their youth with mm -hmm. more agency and perceived agency and control in adulthood. And so you'll often see those dynamics start to surface. And it doesn't mean that if you ended up marrying somebody who struggles with addiction or you yourself do and you came from that, that the partnership is doomed. Mm -hmm. It just is something to really observe like, oh, wow, like that was shaping even the parts of what I called love and chemistry mm -hmm. before I even consciously knew that it was happening. And that's pretty powerful. It humbles us to just be aware that there is so much more going on at the conscious level. One of my hopes is that there's just time to know who you're partnering with, just time mm -hmm. together to kind of at least see some of the fine print because the coin will flip over. That's why marriage has such a low success rate right now is because you eventually 
show and manifest all your neurobiological and intergenerational patterns of attachment in a marriage. So what would be an example of some some quality, something that somebody would be attracted to that would be a trait that would drive them apart later? Well, like the case of alcoholism, Mm -hmm. right? Or substance abuse of any kind is one. Um, But that's a good question. Let me try to think about that where I wouldn't like be revealing of anything. Yeah, like, like, well, I'm, I'm wondering like, we think of alcoholism as a pathological thing. It's probably not a good thing for most people. <laughs> I'm trying to be politically correct here because maybe in some culture it's a good thing, but mostly not a good thing. But I imagine that there are personality traits that are not pathological. They're just they're just a trait. Like I don't know, like like extroversion. Extroversion. I was just gonna say. Okay. Exactly. So like when you're falling in love, right? There. And this is a benign example, right? But like. You know, you may be introverted and think, oh, this is so great because he or she encourages me to like be out there more and he or she carries the conversation and blah, 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 right? And then you fast forward like 10 years down the road and like the extrovert is out every single night alone and the husband or the wife or the partner is at home and they've just sort of gone back to their you know, innate tendencies, their temperamental tendencies. Um, right. Or I even imagine on another level, the extrovert introvert couple goes to a party. The introverted person likes the fact that the extroverted person is, is pulling them out of their shell a little bit. But after 10 years of this is like, will you just shut up already? Yes. <laughs> You're stealing the show. Why do you have to make such an ass of yourself? Like, can you just like be quiet for a minute? Yeah. Like that, that might be a kind of dynamic that would get under somebody's skin. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, you even see the unconscious going back to the ACOA situation. Like you even see that when like one person gets sober in a partnership, mm-hmm. you see things go tippy toppy where consciously you'd think, well, once this person gets sober, like things should smooth out but Mm. actually you see tremendous conflict because somebody's changed the script Mm -hmm. they've changed the script of how it was going in that in that direction um but there's like endless ways like i mean so like i'm sorry to interrupt but just to get back to that so i imagine like uh the person is playing out this need to help the alcoholic partner that person gets better and then the first person, what's my role here? What's my job? This person, they, do they need me anymore? Totally. Yeah. You know, the movie came out when we were kind of like in our, I think in our 20s or something. But um, the movie was When a Man Loves a Woman, mm-hmm. um, Meg Ryan and Andy Garcia. And I thought that movie did a really good job of showing that kind of unconscious, like one cared for, the other wanted to be cared for. You know, and each person had their own unconscious drive that was fueling this partnership. And then you saw when they tipped it upside down and the roles started changing, um, the kind of right on the other side of chemistry is conflict, mm-hmm. right on the flip side of it. And, and you saw that emerge. You know, it just dawns on me that that's if somebody's really interested in looking at something that I think does a good job of unfolding that, that's one of those movies that really shows that how it changes everything. Yeah, that was a great movie. And I thought for a moment there, Sarah, when you were uh, talking about childhood movies, you were going to invoke the Breakfast Club. So 
I'm glad you went to something a little uh, more relevant, uh, but that's when I think generationally. Oh, that's so funny. John Hughes. Yes, exactly. Okay, so that's a great example of that. For therapeutically speaking, I know you've you've talked about this in a number of different ways so far. Somebody who is trying to really wants to understand themselves better and make more conscious, deliberate decisions that are good for them and understand how their unconscious is driving that. How do you steer them with that? What can they do to work on that part of themselves? First of all, like start working with somebody who Mm -hmm. works in this domain that understands this and that you know, it's a way of listening as the clinician. And you're listening for sort of like the spaces kind of between the words. So first of all, get in partnership with somebody who is working in this realm. And then for me, with all my patients, it starts with developing this capacity. And I talk to my patients as we want to develop a really strong capacity for an observing ego. This is another kind of remnant from my deep analytic training, right? It's a muscle to observe yourself with kind of no horse in the race, no chatter around it. You're really trying to just observe yourself. And the best bang for the buck is going to be through mindfulness or stillness, some practice of Mm self-awareness, self-reflection that slows you down and gets you acquainted with your own relationship with yourself your unconscious is always an opportunity for you to look at you Mm -hmm. and you look deeply at your own relationship with yourself and that's sort of the best place to start and from there it, it really does take care of itself it really I mean learning takes place through for most of us it's through repetition and pattern recognition. That's Mm -hmm. what our brain likes. So are we paying attention more to what we're thinking? Are we are we paying attention to our feelings? Are we paying attention to our behavioral patterns? Yes. All three? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. You're paying attention to what it feels like to be in your skin and bones. You're paying attention to how you do that, how you distract yourself. Uh, what comes up? Where does your mind wander? You know, the default mode network is a is a whole nother topic, but it's a really valuable space where the unconscious roams and and interacts with us. And so, what I try to do right from the start, because people like to do things, but and most of the time, anyway, the the stuff that works is the space between us as a patient and a therapist, right? It's always kind of the relationship that heals, but it's fairly systematic. It follows the same neurobiological principles that our brain does for any type of learning. And first we have to sort of observe it. We have to become aware that it is happening. Usually at first, we're only going to know that once we've crossed the line, we're like, oh, I did it again. It's behind us. Then over time, emphasis on time, you can see it once it is happening. I'm about to do that again, but I still have no capacity for self-regulation to stop it. Mm -hmm. Then you can get a shoulder length ahead of it. And that's through repetition and pattern recognition and some Mm -hmm. other sort of like, you know, uh, through healing. 
Mm -hmm. shame softening shame so just gaining some awareness yeah at at just even a minimal level yes is the beginning of the road down that path down that path yeah and then once you have that capacity i always say to patients like once you have the capacity for the observing ego once we can see and feel together that that capacity for observation has developed you can keep coming I, i love i love working with people this is my life's work um but you don't need me you have it now. You possess it. I always joke that people are always like, I want homework. I want homework. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Great. So today, what I want you to do is go home. And between now and next week, I want you to stay perfectly still for 10 minutes a day, every single day. And I want you to observe what comes up. And they're like, no, I want real homework. <laughs> I want to do math problems on a worksheet. <laughs> right. I'm like, it is real homework. Yeah. Right. It's just a different, a different way of looking really at it. really hard. People would rather write a sonnet than have to actually sit still yeah. and just observe their own relationship with themselves. Yeah. So, Sarah, any final thoughts, insights, or advice on this subject that we've been having an interesting conversation about? What I would encourage people to think about is that there is so much more about yourself that you don't know. And usually we think we don't want to know it because we think it's going to be scary and fucked up and dark and pathologic. And really it's kind of where all the good stuff happens. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly where healing happens. And so just begin to exercise that muscle of curiosity and self-observation and acquaint yourself with your own partnership with your own self, your mind, your body, your brain. They're They're not separate things. And that's a good start. Yeah, I think that's, those are excellent suggestions for that insight-oriented work that people can do on themselves. And remind me, what is your website? Yeah, so my website is Dr. Dr. Sarah with an H, Sarkis. I'm sure you'll post all the links and stuff. And there's like, I have my blog there. I have a bunch of podcasts. And then there's all the information if you want to access like working together and stuff. We've both talked about how we're doing more and more consulting and advisory mm-hmm. work and stuff that doesn't require everybody to live in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. A lot more telehealth types of yeah. video sessions, yeah, right? Exactly. I know that you've been doing that. Yes. An excellent website. I highly recommend uh, you check it out, drsarasarkis.com, and I will have a link for that. Really amazing blog entries and writings that you do. You're a very skilled and wonderful writer. Thank you. And podcast interviewee. So Thank you so much. So Sarah, I'll come for back for. Um, we'll do defense mechanisms. Yes, let's do defense mechanisms. That people, we could even have your listeners write in on what ones they want to know about. Yes, yes, and we can ha- we we can have them in rank order, I suppose. Yes, exactly. We'll, we'll get that involved, but I think a, a defense mechanisms would be a wonderful topic, and we'll have you back for that. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.